1: Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the
0: way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.
1: Welcome to episode 647 with my return guest, Rebecca D. We're going to talk about how it's going with her cutting contact with her mom. Um, let's get first things out of the way. My name is Paul Bill Martin. This is Mental Illness Happy Hour. Place for Honesty. But everything in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking, the show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist, uh, but I am a hockey player and I'm back to playing hockey after the shoulder surgery. My God, it feels so good. It feels so fucking good. Um, I should probably paint this picture for for you guys. I haven't showered in probably a day and a half. Uh, I probably don't smell that great. And it's June and I'm wearing maybe the thickest hiking socks known to man. I don't know why I'm cold, but I'm cold. And why am I mentioning all this? Because if for some reason I bail in the middle of this show, I'm ready to climb Mount Everest with my hiking socks. And that's a tip I thought you guys might like: is whenever you're going into a situation that's sketchy, wear hiking socks. Things go bad. Somebody says something you don't like. Boom, you're at the summit of K two, isolating, and you've accomplished some. And you've, you know what? That that was karma for thinking that a bit that lame was going to be funny, it, it was karma, that the, the gods of speech came in and threw a pitchfork into my tongue. Let's read some surveys. This is from the uh, Ask Paul Anything survey, and uh, this is from a woman who calls herself not sure what I went by last time, and she writes, I'm sorry if my survey answers a while back involving animals was too morbid. Uh, my... She's referring to, I believe, somebody filled out a survey or, or, yes, somebody had um, asked the question, uh, are there ever things that are too heavy that that you don't read on the podcast? And I said, yeah, occasionally there are. And sometimes it's things that I avoid are when people talk about harming animals. Uh, And what I specifically was talking about was like, uh, you know, God, I hate even using the word, but like torturing them or killing them. And um, this woman writes, my abusers uh, used animals to perform the abuse. And while I know it wasn't the fault of the animal and that they were also being abused, I've always been shut down and made to feel as though I was an abuser. I was just a child and I feel as though I will never truly be heard because of it. I'm sorry. You have nothing to apologize about. And that was not... I, I don't want anybody to apologize for anything they've ever filled out on the, in the surveys. That one of the reasons why I created them is I wanted people to be able to speak freely, and yeah, I read a lot of heavy stuff uh, in there. But I chose to do this podcast, and I choose to do this podcast and hear material like that. And sometimes the stuff that's really hard to read or really hard to talk about is the stuff that is most valuable and the most freeing for people to be able to either say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people or I grew up around one of those people, or I think about being one of those people. And so no need to apologize. That's my long winded way of saying you are all good. Nothing to worry about. This is from the ask Paul anything survey uh, filled out by that black girl. Tip of the cap. I uh, she's filled out more than a few surveys and occasionally emails me, and she uh, writes um, dancing, and then a colon. Can you question mark? Do you question mark? Would you? And I would say, can I? Fuck yeah. Do I? Hardly ever. Would you? Oh, you bet. Comments to make the podcast better. Video responses to certain APA Ask Paul anything questions. That's a great idea. And what I think I'm going to do for the Patreon people. (laughs) This actually sounds like this is something that I would do if I was mad at them rather than something to reward somebody on Patreon. But I'm going to do a video response uh, to this question and post it on Patreon. So if you want to see me be a jackass uh, Patreon donors... Go watch the video of if, if me doing that. Hold on. I'm all discombobulated. You know, I think my hiking socks are backfiring on me. Is that the first time anybody's used that sentence? My hiking socks backfired on me? Tell you, if this goes any more downhill, I am going to march to the Himalayas. Marching to the Himalayas, by the way, the name of my first album, not very successful. Also the name of my children's cologne, incredibly successful. This is from the psych ward experiences filled out by a trans man who calls uh, himself Raspberry Glow. And uh, why were you hospitalized? I've been hospitalized many, many times since age 15. I used to keep track, but after 10, I lost count. I have bipolar 1 disorder and have mostly been hospitalized after suicide attempts or when in danger of hurting myself. Describe your experience as a patient. Um, I've had so many different experiences, some very good, others very bad. Some that helped me and others that left me with more trauma. As a teen in the psych ward for children, I remember playing with the other kids and swinging on the swing in the playground, but I also remember people secretly throwing up in the toilets and the screaming as others were forcefully dragged into solitary confinement. In the adult psychiatric hospitals, I remember being screamed at by another patient who threatened to beat me up, spending a night in solitary confinement because there were no other rooms available, and I remember losing other patients and friends to suicide. But I also remember secretly leaving the premises and running down the streets at night with a few of the other patients while we went looking for pizza and staying up late one night at the hospital, playing board games together until the nurses forced us to go to bed. Wow, that's so, that is so much like uh, the movie, uh, am I blanking on it, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You've never seen that movie. It's so good. It's so good. 70s classic. Thank you for sharing that, man, that, that, uh, when an image, you guys going down the street at night looking for pizza, I just, I love how beauty and horror can just be riding the same tandem bicycle. Just so often, so often you see beauty and horror mixed together, usually on vacation together. This is from the love survey filled out by Pug Mom, and she writes, I love a storm in the middle of the night. Waking up to a falling beautiful snow in the morning. I love when my dog jumps on the bed in the middle of the night and dives right under the blanket head first. How her little paws smell like cornflakes. I love to listen to birds in the woods. I love waking up to the sounds and smells of breakfast that my husband is making downstairs. Oh, I love that one. I love that no matter what's going on in the world and in our lives, we will always cuddle at night and watch a show together. Oh, that's so sweet. I love fresh mandarin oranges. That's a great one. I love hot water with lemon slices. That's an awful one. And I cast you to hell. The ocean! Exclamation point. Give you a pass on that one. I love a free summer concert. You're earning your way back. Mostly I just love my dog. I just love holding her paw and feel it jerk a little as she is happily running somewhere in her sleep. You have reinstated yourself. The hot water with the lemon slices man you were you are on the outs you are on the outskirts of town peering in and then your dog brings you back this episode is sponsored by when breath becomes air when breath becomes air by paul kalanathy is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question what When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com/breath.
0: Delve into the Shadows of the Mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy
1: Award winner
0: Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective. Unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall, uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash
1: to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash And then finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Roomy Nation. And he writes, i uh, been feeling extra low, so I planned a couple hour drive to clear my head. Had the idea to call 988, which is suicide hotline number, while driving to help me keep it between the lines. Foolishly, I push my old car a little too hard on the acceleration lane to the highway, and I smell something. Did my fucking air conditioner compressor just go out? Yup. Is it r- nearly 90 degrees? Yup. Laughing, I realize because having the windows down is just too loud. There's no way I can call the suicide hotline number. My consciousness might be disintegrated.
0: Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And
1: I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive.
0: The first movie that I remember watching with him.
1: Post-traumatic stress. When I was
0: like five years old was Pulp Fiction.
1: <laughs> and Moral Injury. I would
0: act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. With my Barbies.
1: <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering... Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. ...is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions. It is
0: very hard to heal in dark isolation.
1: I developed compassion.
0: It is in connection and community where that happens.
1: The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this. <laughs> I am here again with uh, with Rebecca D., uh thank you for making the the slog from a couple couple hours away. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, of course. It's great to be back.
1: I don't think the last time you were here that we talked about you starting to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner.
0: I don't think we did. I don't think we talked about me being a nurse at all. That's how
1: fucked up you are that we didn't even get into your profession yeah, in the my mental fault. health business. You're you're such a mess. Oh, that's so awesome that you're that you're doing that. You're a nurse already, but this is extra schooling. What what is that like?
0: Um, yeah. So I am a nurse currently. My specialty is ICU. Um, it's where I've picked up the majority of my experience as a nurse. I've been doing that for about uh I, ICU for eight years, a nurse for ten years, and um. The pandemic really kind of burned me out in terms of, you know, just being a nurse and working in critical care.
1: Your your experience is so intense that to lighten things up, you're going to go into the psych wards.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. <coughs> I'm going into psych because I need a break. <laughs> I want something easy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh- Aren't you afraid that you're going to get burned out there? Because there's a lot of burnout from from what I understand. What what is the attraction other than getting out of the emergency room?
0: Um, ICU. So um,
1: at, oh, I see. The, the ICU is after the emergency room, where the most critical yes, patients go. Gotcha. Exactly.
0: It's kind of where all the, the the sickest of the sick patients go, who need the most um, monitoring. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, so I think that, you know, it certainly is possible that I may get burned out doing that also. Mm. Um, what I found with all of my time working in critical care, because there are psych patients in the ICU as well, sure. um, is that I really, really enjoyed um, working with those patients. And really? that was unique because none of the other nurses did. People would just kind of like, be like, oh, man, I'll trade you, you know?
1: What was it that you enjoyed about it?
0: Um, there's a little bit of like detective work that goes into it, I think, trying to kind of figure out, um, figure out what's making somebody tick and how to get um, specific symptoms under control. Most of the time in the ICU, it's about whether or not the person is delirious because they're in the ICU or whether or not they are – um you know actually psychotic because of a pre-existing mental health condition
1: was part of the burnout in the ICU watching people die during the pandemic or what what was it in particular
0: so that's definitely a big part of it and that was a huge part of it even before the pandemic um but honestly and and uh, this is shocking to a lot of people but i think that the 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 death in the ICU isn't even the worst part. I think that the worst part is when you know that somebody's gonna die anyway, but um, we can't just let them because either the family hasn't, you know, arrived to the same realization that that's inevitably what's going to happen or some other circumstance. And we're having to pour resources and time and energy into, you know, what we all know is kind of a futile cause right. and that I think is where like the majority of the burnout um happens because I feel like I felt like I went into nursing because I wanted to help people and I started to feel like I was becoming the villain like I I don't I'm not helping people I'm hurting people
1: because you're extending their suffering
0: because I'm extending their suffering and making them crawl to their deathbeds
1: essentially <laughs> that's such that's such a Oh, my God. that That's such a phrase that the average person doesn't use in their usual job.
0: Just a little bit of light light banter for you. <laughs>
1: you are awesome. Uh, so one of the reasons I wanted to have you back on is you cut contact with your mom a while ago. Um, for people who haven't listened to your episode, and we mostly talked about your dad when you were on previously. Mm-hmm. Give us uh, a bit of a history in your relationship with your mom, the stuff we didn't touch on in your family before we get to you going no contact with her.
0: Oh, that's difficult to try to summarize. Um, I guess the bullet points would be that my mom was always the provider of my family and, um, my mom is a physician. I think I did mention that the last Mm -hmm. time I was here. Um, and so she was always kind of the breadwinner of the family at the same time. She was very much a workaholic and always kind of emotionally checked out. Um, so growing up, I always felt like I had no right to be disappointed in my mother because all of my, um, physical and material needs were met. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I got much older that I realized that there was really something wrong there in terms of um, feeling like emotionally, no matter what I did, no matter how I tried to change my expectations or um, alter myself and what I wanted and how I went into the interactions, I just for lack of a better way to put it, I felt like I was always the parent and she was always the child.
1: Expand on that if you can.
0: So I think the first thing that comes to mind is that my mom, for whatever reason, loves to antagonize. And she loves to do it in a really like humiliating way. So at both of my sister's weddings, my mom's objective was to try to um, get as much negative attention onto herself as she possibly could. She wasn't
1: even trying for positive attention.
0: No, no, no. She wasn't trying for positive attention at all. And I think this is completely subconscious. I don't think she went into it saying, here's my agenda. I'm going to be humiliating and have people looking at I me. See. I think that I think that there's just some kind of high that she gets from from... I think it's a control thing. I right. think that it's the humiliation that either myself or my sister's experience and, and like the need that we then feel to kind of have to manage and control the situation. There's something about that. That's really like exhilarating for her.
1: And Like what in particular did she do? If you're comfortable sharing.
0: Yeah. Um, whether it's saying like really off, off color things like, um, the photographer was asking me where my where my father was because my sister my sisters are my half sisters from my mother's first marriage so they have a different father and my my mom kind of interrupted and started talking about how I'm a mutt therefore my dad is not there which I don't think she meant to say mutt I think she meant to say some variation of like I'm a bastard mm-hmm. um like I'm a bastard child but she said oh no no she's a mutt and um she just generally doesn't have a lot of Boundaries and social etiquette. So she'll start talking about things like whether they're sexual or have to pertain to the human reproductive system in really like inappropriate settings.
1: With family, outside family, both?
0: Everywhere and anywhere.
1: In line at the grocery store?
0: Yeah. When I was in high school, I remember I was interviewing to... Uh, before high school, I remember I was interviewing to get into this into this prestigious preparatory school um, somewhere like around West Los Angeles. And my mom, for whatever reason, started during my interview talking about her friend's son who um, has like a conduct disorder and was smearing his excrement on the walls. Just thought to bring that up because why not? Why not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, you guys were talking about interior decorating. Yeah. It seemed like a natural segue.
0: And even as a 13-year-old, I remember feeling like, oh, my God, I wish I could put a muzzle on her. Yeah. Yeah.
1: One of the things you mentioned before we started recording was that there being some orthodoxy in your family that that can present issues sometimes because you do not uh, still observe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, my, my older half sisters are Orthodox Jews and one of them is more traditional Orthodox. So like really old school by the book and the, and the other one is more modern Orthodox, um, which is, you know, in, in my,
1: can she turn on the light switch on the Sabbath?
0: I don't think she does that, but okay. she does other things like kind of pre, with pre-planning, gotcha. you know, um, Wears pants, things like that. That's the that's same. the one that's more modern orthodox. The more traditional is more what I what I personally, you know, perceive to be more in line with with fundamentalist.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So growing up, I was never raised Orthodox. I was raised in the same house that they were. So the expectation was um, that. I had to maintain all of the rules of the house, keeping the house kosher, the two sides of the sink,
1: and was that because of your stepfather?
0: um that was because that was in order to make the house livable for my sisters
1: but who where did they get the orthodoxy from?
0: Oh, that was from their father,
1: I see yeah, not that their, was from their father, who lived with your mother? who was your stepfather
0: no he he was already divorced from my from my mother so they they're older than I am,
1: uh-huh.
0: so really they i mean he was never really that orthodox um going into it. He was more modern orthodox, but they they were sent to this school mm-hmm. um that was an orthodox day school, and so they kind of you know drank the kosher kool-aid if you will gotcha. and and um really got more into it even from the time that they were in elementary school and kind of took those principles home with them and wanted to um, live a lifestyle that was comparable to that of their friends. Gotcha. And so I was sent to the same school that they were, even though I wasn't practicing at all, but I was given the explicit instruction that I needed to keep it for a secret from everybody that I knew that I didn't keep kosher, that I didn't keep Shabbat um, because – it would not only humiliate my sisters but it would it would um, bring shame upon myself and people wouldn't want to be friends with me. They wouldn't want to hang out with me.
1: Even more shame and secrets as if there wasn't enough in the inner life of young Rebecca.
0: Yeah. I just couldn't get enough.
1: What, what do you think or feel as you think, think back and remember walking around with all these secrets?
0: I think – Honestly, there's times where even still I think to myself that it is like, wow, that is so fucked up. How did I not have any um, any adult force in my life to just be like, uh, there's something not normal and not okay about this. Um, And. I think that. I genuinely think that my parents did the best that they could. I really do. And that's really sad because um, there were a lot of missed opportunities. And and there there was a lot there that, um, you know, I felt like I had done something wrong from the time that I was basically born. I felt like there was just some undercurrent of my sisters are – like, my mom's children and I'm just, like, the one that came after the them. Yeah, I'm the mutt. <laughs> I really am the mutt. She wasn't lying.
1: <laughs> so when did the possibility of cutting contact with your mom mom, come onto your radar?
0: So that came about um, – I mean, there were times in the past where, it, you know, the idea had floated around in my mind, not really out of like, this is a plan, this is a thing that I'm going to do, but more so out of like desperation. Like, what can I do to make this work for myself?
1: And had this been suggested by somebody else, a therapist or support group, or just kind of on your own, like, I need some mental space?
0: Um, A sponsor from a support group. Okay. Yeah. Because it was the kind of thing where it was like, you know, I'm living in San Diego and then coming to LA often. I would stay with my mom and I was really trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, rationalizing being there by, by saying like, well, you know, there's so much space. I don't want to have to pay for a hotel or I can, this way I can bring my dogs. And it was, there was always like, um, these subconscious anchors that were giving me reasons to, to, to put up with, um, all of these behaviors and, and, and all of these things that ultimately just led to me feeling so insane
1: what do you mean when you say subconscious angers?
0: There were these uh, it's difficult to explain, but there were these 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 rationalizations that I would make right that I would give myself for why I had to keep myself in this situation that I knew was was um unfulfilling or not just unfulfilling but was 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 really detrimental to my mental health.
1: Anger at yourself?
0: No anchors. Like like Oh I thought
1: you said anger. Yeah
0: no anchors like keeping me there like little like little you know ways that that um I would convince myself that this was the best possible strategy to keep me in a toxic relationship.
1: It's amazing how we will um justify the mentally and emotionally unhealthy choices if logistically it seems easier. And and do you think that's a way of our brain protecting us, um, trying to change the family that will never change, give it another shot? Uh, What what do you think? Is it just that you're kind of unrecovered at that that point? You're not used to taking care of yourself?
0: I think that I thought that I could have the I think I have a real fear of change, honestly. I think that the idea of completely living on my own in San Diego, being in grad school, not having some tether to the home environment where I'm from was scary to me. And I think that I – my brain was able to convince myself that I really needed to – um keep ties in los angeles and i started finding myself wanting to go to more meetings in los angeles and making up excuses to come to los angeles more and i think that to answer your question i think that part of that is my avoidance honestly i think that you know finally being in san diego and being in grad school was something i wanted to do for so long and then it was like finally when i got there it was like my way of kind of sabotaging it but without actually sabotaging it
1: Mm. And so how how did it progress to where you are today in your distance?
0: So really um, the shit hit the fan when I was on winter break because I ended up coming to LA and staying in LA for about um, a month uninterrupted. And that's when I got to a place where- How many
1: years ago was this?
0: This was just recently. Okay. This was in December to January of, of this past year. Okay. Um and i had and I had gotten to a place where I felt like there were constant mishaps in the home um i It was the way that my mom was maintaining the home, which is Her home, you know, she can maintain it any way she wants. But it was like certain situations where my mom was just not taking care of herself, not taking care of the home, leaving trash out. My dog would end up eating trash and, you know, throwing up trash and things like that. And I would try to, uh, I would really get stuck in the pattern of, mom, why can't you do this? Mom, why can't you be different? Why can't you meet me halfway? And that's the insanity, right? Is is yeah. expecting somebody to change who has already given me um, plenty of indications that, that lots is- of data. Yeah, right. Lots of data. It was just never going to happen, and I ultimately decided to. Um, I decided to go no contact for three months because I wanted to take a break. I needed time to kind of process, Um, I think the major impetus for that was that one of my like rules for success for myself um, that I've acquired in support groups is that I I don't allow myself to tell people what's wrong with them unless I'm asked to as part of my job, right? right? So if I'm, you know, taking somebody else's inventory, as they call it, that for me is a huge no-no and it kept happening with my mom where um she would she would do something um something to really trigger me because you know family can for me family just pushes my buttons in a way that nobody else can.
1: Yeah that what's the saying your parents know how to push your buttons because they installed them?
0: Yeah, that's right. And I always like the saying that your family's there to remind you why you have friends.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that one yeah. before um remember where where you're at right now because i I, I want to ask you a question one of one of the things when we have a relationship with somebody that's really complicated, even toxic is believing their words when their actions betray what their words are saying was there a disconnect? would your mom you know, give you lip service, I'm gonna change, or I sorry I did that, or or would she just completely ignore you and, and there were no words of I promise I'm gonna do this or et cetera?
0: There was no lip service whatsoever. Um any time there was any type of um, addressing of a certain behavior, even if it was a simple behavior such as, hey, when the trash fills up, let me know and I'll take it out. You don't have to put a paper bag on top of the trash and then fill that with trash. <laughs> um, it was like, I don't want to talk about it. Drop it. Drop the subject. There was no ability for us to have a constructive conversation about like, you know, how can we make this easier for each other i mean there were even times when i would try to have conversations about things and she would actually mock me physically like there was one there was one time where um i was having a conversation with her about you know so- something involving keeping my dog safe or not allowing my dog to get into garbage something along those lines and she started mimicking the way that i was moving my hands wow yeah, like really childish. And I wanted so badly in that moment to just like go off. But I knew that if I did that, that was essentially giving her what she wanted because she wanted to to have that feeling of of exhilaration, that high from knowing that she got to me because I, I, know, I know her well enough to know that that's what she thrives on.
1: Did you know that before you got into support groups and therapy?
0: I had a hunch, but I didn't fully understand it. To me, it was just, um, my mom does not know how to be socially appropriate. Yeah. Um, I just kind of chalked it up to her being, um, you know, sh- too sheltered growing up, not having enough friends, being a bookworm. Um, and so it, it never really occurred to me that, that her antagonizing uh, myself or my sisters was something that was you know, at least on a subconscious level, on her part, intentional, you know, because it was something that gave really gave her um, this feeling of power.
1: I'm sure you found yourself wondering what is at the core of your mom that drives her behavior. You know, is it genetic? Is it environmental? What What's her deal? Uh, what do you find yourself – and I'm not asking you to, you know – assign a a label as you know as if you're her psychiatrist but just your curiosity about what is her fucking deal
0: yeah so that's a really interesting question because the theme of power and control is so pervasive across my whole family particularly not just with my mom but it's like every woman in the family meet between me and my and my two half uh, half sisters it's um it's huge. It's about power and control. At the same time, like, you know, when I was growing up, there were so many opportunities where my mom could have provided appropriate discipline. Um, And as far as I'm concerned, could have gotten her power and control fixed that way. Um, But instead of doing that, she kind of just allowed me to go wild as a teenager, but then would turn around and take control in other areas where, you know, kids and, and and teens should have been allowed to kind of start to grow up and make their own choices. Um, So that was kind of a paradox. But I think that, I think that my, that if I had to say, you know, I think that my mom has just never worked on herself, Mm -hmm. honestly. And I think that my mom uh, is kind of like the, the queen bee of avoidance and just doesn't really choose to look at her part in things It's ever. probably
1: terrifying to her.
0: I'm sure it is terrifying to her because it seems like she has like an allergic reaction to any form of criticism whatsoever. I mean, she's so quick to just tell you to drop it. Do not bring it up again. I don't want to talk about it. And yeah. that is the that is the end of that.
1: It's interesting that, that you talk about your sister's uh, power and control being an issue for them and they practice orthodoxy which, in large part, is a surrendering of power to the husband, or am I mistaken?
0: No, you're not mistaken at all. Um, but there's certain ways I believe in which the the religion itself feeds the um, obsessive compulsiveness, um, per- particularly with the sister that I have who is more traditional orthodox. There's a lot of like obsessive compulsive tendencies um. And I think that if she if she didn't have this religion to fall back on, I think that it's likely that she would have been labeled an obsessive-compulsive personality type um, much, much earlier in her life. But because she has that religion to fall back on, it sort of enables her to have these tendencies because it's not just about um, exerting power and control for myself. It's about doing it for God.
1: Would you call that religiosity? I guess it doesn't matter yeah, what what, w- what you what you call it.
0: Yeah, I would say it's it's I I, I mean I don't know if, if if it's even like a clever ruse almost because it's mm-hmm. like fixation on things. For example, there's certain rules about, you know, on, on on Shabbat you're not supposed to rip things cuz you're not supposed to change things from their original form. So every Friday she would sit there and she would rip pre-rip squares of toilet paper um you know, to have toilet paper that's the right size because she couldn't rip toilet paper on Shabbat. And just like all kinds of little things like that that you can imagine that to to somebody who hasn't grown up in that environment seems, for lack of a better way to put it, ridiculous.
1: Well, let me just be practical here for a second. How would you use toilet paper on Shabbat if you can't rip it?
0: Um, Well, that's why she had to do it on Fridays. She would pre-make all the toilet paper –
1: I understand that but why was that uh, a not normal or logical thing to do
0: because on the 7th day god rested and so this is this is you know from from this this was always her argument that on the 7th day god rested and so taking something out of its original form and putting it into another form is considering doing work of some kind
1: right i understand that but but if she's following that logic, why does it not make sense for her to pre, pre-rip those things?
0: No. If she's following the logic, it makes perfect sense. I see. It was – for me, like that was just one example of like all of these little rules and, 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 and strict traditions that needed to be followed and if you would divert from these traditions, then you would I see.
1: Um, it was the intensity around them, not the fact that they existed and were done.
0: It was the intensity around them and the fact that there was no room for anyone else to exist um, in a parallel way. It had to be that way all the time, I no matter you. what.
1: And uh, there's a, a fascinating article, article by Dr. Alan Rappaport called Co-Narcissism. And one of the things when we grow up in the care of a narcissist or two narcissists is um, we believe that the world views us the way our, our Caregiver views us, and we engage in black and white thinking. S- uh, subtlety and nuance is really difficult, and I think for a lot of people, religion gives them that home field advantage to justify their black and white thinking. You're, you know, you're from God or you're the devil. You're right or you're wrong.
0: Yeah, there's no gray area. There's there's uh, there's no gray area whatsoever. And when there's no gray area, there's no grace. There was no grace for me to grow up and be an adolescent girl who was not orthodox. So any um, curiosity around boys or being boy crazy or having crush on boys from boy bands was seen as um, perverse. So one of the things that I think I mentioned before is that taking, taking somebody else's inventory is considered a huge no-no for me in the context of how I uh, work my programs mm-hmm. in support groups and I kept breaking that rule because I would become so triggered by my mother's behavior that I would end up calling her a narcissist or calling her a to mega- her face to her face, yeah, oh yeah, or calling her a megalomaniac or something of that nature, um which seems like I mean when I think about it, it seems like a relatively benign thing to do, but in the context of the way that it makes me sick. Um, it is significant because when I think that I have all the answers and that it's my business to start telling other people what's wrong with them, that's just what contributes to my own personal unwellness, if you will. Um, So I had a conversation with my sponsor about how I just cannot for the life of me seem to um, uphold to this standard of living where I don't tell my mom what's wrong with her. And I think part of that was that I was always so triggered by the way that – I felt disappointed um, by her. It wasn't just about what was happening in that moment. It was all of the moments before from childhood where I felt disappointed. And I just – it's like I wanted to scream in her face like, why don't you fucking get it, you know? And so my sponsor suggested a temporary three-month no contact just to basically allow myself time to um, get enough distance to have a clear perspective, Around such a the situation.
1: great
0: idea. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so what did that look like?
0: Well, honestly, I didn't even have to have any conversation with my mom about it. I didn't have to say, I just want you to know that I'm not going to talk to you for three months and don't you dare text me or call me or anything. I mean, again, my mom is like the probably the most avoidant person that I know. So she's the type of person where unless I reach out to her – I know she's not gonna reach out
1: to me. That's kind of a good thing. In this I situation, mean, sad yeah. historically, but in this situation, yeah.
0: In this situation, it made my job really easy because I think that um my mom and my family in general have a tendency to weaponize information. So if I was to convey that I'm doing this thing, I'm gonna ask for space for a few months. That in some way, shape or form would get turned around, sure. you know, and used against me, which I have no control over that. You know, it's it's ultimately that it's th- they are the way that they are. And that's not going to be changing because of me anytime soon. Um, But it was kind of one of those situations where I felt like, OK, well, if I can take the path of least resistance by not having this be a thing where it gets to. um you know, breathe life into this concept that, oh, well, it's her, it's Rebecca, you know, you know how she is. She's dramatic or, you know, she, there she goes, just, you know, always upset about something.
1: And so have there been stumbling blocks? H- have there been emotions that come up for you? Guilt? Uh, I don't know, missing her? What, what? or is it, has it has it just been kind of smooth sailing and a relief?
0: There were times where I definitely felt like there were things that were coming up that I should let my mom know. For example, in 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 the time that it's been since I've spoken to her, my sixteen year old cat was diagnosed with cancer, and I really wanted to tell my mom. And I don't even know why I really wanted to tell my mom because I I don't think that she would really like, you know. I mean, I don't think that she would be happy about it, but I just don't think that she would be that interested or care. She or comforting. No, she would not be comforting at all. Um, in fact, I'm sure she would probably tell me to euthanize the cat immediately as opposed to letting things happen um, in in their time. But it was one of those things where in the beginning I really felt like, gosh, I really feel like I should be telling my mom this. But as the situation progressed, I realized that it was such a blessing that I wasn't um, – Speaking to my mom at that time, because my mom just loves to tell other people what they're doing wrong and why they should be doing it differently and why they should be doing things her way. Um, unsolicited advice is like her favorite hobby.
1: Yeah, I've, I've described my mom that way that it, it, she's like that thing at the grocery checkout that scans everything, and it's like everything that comes into her view. Gets scanned and she lets you know the price of it and how she feels about the price of it, um, which it, it seems like there's never questioning on her part of is anybody interested in hearing this. I think it's just a survival skill and I don't hate her for. I used to hate her for it and I was angry at, at her for it when I forced myself to be around it. And it, it's amazing when you stop forcing yourself to have relationships with toxic people, how much easier it is to have compassion for them from a distance.
0: Yeah, I would definitely have to agree with that. Um, And that checkout analogy with the scanners is like really spot on. Um, And I think that at the same time, my mom, because of like, you know, what she perceives or what she may perceive to be her own failures in life. It's like when she's evaluating what the price tag is on certain things, she doesn't have an objective lens. She's looking at it through this like really depressed, morose kind of filter where everything is bad and everyone's out to get you and life sucks and people suck. And it, it, there's no room for positivity. There's no room for hope. There's no room Mm -hmm. for optimism. It's like, I, I couldn't even share things with her that I felt happy or excited about yeah. because it was always like, well, make sure you do, you, you, you know, yes. you do this or you don't do that. Otherwise, you're going to fuck it up. And
1: I, I, I know that feeling. And, and I would find myself shutting down on the phone, hiding things that I was happy about because I didn't want to have them shit on
0: yes a lot of selective information sharing even mm-hmm. for things that seem like what's the big deal why wouldn't you just share that it's like i feel like i'm constantly with not just my mom but with my family in general i i don't share things with them yeah. um because if there's any potential opportunity that somebody's going to you know express an opinion that they weren't asked for or somebody's going to have something to say about it i just would rather not deal with it
1: and it in a lot of ways, I understand um, in the collective sickness of the human being in general how easy it is to do that because I do that sometimes, uh, especially about movies. Well, I'll be watching a movie with my girlfriend, and you know it'll be over directed, in my opinion, or the acting is really too big. Like the, the most recent movie by Steven Spielberg, I, we gave it two hours. The Fablemans. And it was so disappointing because I was really excited. It was Steven Spielberg. I love a lot of his movies, and and I was outraged at how badly I thought it was executed. I was like, I want to hear this information about his life. He knows autobiographical, and yet it it was so, in my opinion, over directed, over acted, and I could not shut up about it. I was angry about it, and I think if I were to really look at it, it would be that. I was angry that my time was wasted, that we could have watched another movie. But instead, I needed to take Steven Spielberg's inventory for 20 minutes, not even considering what it might have been like in my girlfriend's shoes to have to sit and listen to me pontificate and judge.
0: Yeah, I, I can really relate to that. I'm also, I mean, look, I'm my mother's daughter, so there. are there are certainly times where I think I know everything about everything and think that my opinion is literally like the end all be all hmm. and um and there are times where I really have to stop myself and I really like shudder, you know, yeah. with just this like really like visceral feeling of disgust when I realize that like oh my god i' I'm, I'm I'm exactly like my mother
1: I'm glad you mentioned that because I don't think there is recovery if there is real recovery there's gonna be cringing at our past and that to me then is the next step of the recovery is how do we handle our mistakes the things we're cringing over how do we bring compassion to that how do you how do you what do you say to yourself when you find yourself starting to go oh my god rebecca you were such a whatever
0: yeah i mean the adjectives like it doesn't stop you were such an idiot you know you were such a dumbass how could you do that or like oh that's so humiliating even just for me to sit and think about in my car it like sends a shiver down my spine and, and just that that feeling of um of like real like disgust and first of all I take a deep breath and then I remind myself that this was there was never any other option for it to turn out any other way than but this way. And that's the thing about support groups is that you talk to other people and you realize that um, – You know, I always thought that my shit was so unique. I have to be the only person in the world going through this and nobody else can ever understand the plight of being me because it's so, so special.
1: It's so grand and yet shitty.
0: It's so grand and shitty. That's, yeah, it's like the the Steven Spielberg movie. (laughs) But, you know, I, I realized from talking to other people who share such similar experiences that come from completely different backgrounds that, um, there's really nothing unique about it at all. And that's not to say that there's, you know, it, that each person isn't special. And
1: it, that it doesn't matter. It, it does, it does matter. Right. It's, yeah.
0: it's significant. But at the same time, like, this is the collective experience. You know, you go through shit in life that you you end up saying like, oh my God, like, why the fuck did I do that? Um, or wh- what the hell was I thinking? And um, I find that in those moments, kind of interrupting that and finding ways to have compassion for myself and like, you know, saying to myself, well, number one, you were six years old and think about who your parents <laughs> were, you know, think about – Think about what you were going through at the time, um, and think about what they went through um, because, yeah, I mean, I think that this stuff is generational for sure. I think it runs yeah. through families um, going as far back as who knows how
1: long and how do you feel just today sitting here right now? how do you feel with your life, how you feel about yourself, you know, your recovery? just kind of in general do you do you is peace accept accessible for you
0: yeah peace is accessible for me and i think that it looks a lot different than i thought it would i thought that it was going to be kind of this scenario where i would wake up um every day and birds would be chirping around <gasps> me helping me get dressed like fucking cinderella <laughs> you know <laughs> and that it was just going to be this like um like the wizard of oz when it becomes color
1: <laughs> that is so fantastic
0: and it's not like that and 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 i think that the thing that surprises me still even now is that sometimes i have to remind myself because it's so easy for me to get how for for me to forget how good things are now and i have to really stop myself and and say to myself like wait a minute i've actually been waiting years to get to exactly where i am right now um And when I really like intentionally remind myself that things are great, I feel that sense of peace that makes everything else in life feel like just not that big of a deal, whether it's traffic or whether it's, um, you know, Trader Joe's being too crowded or whatever it is. It just feels like more manageable, whereas before it felt like me against the world.
1: I think one of the cruelest things that we can do to ourselves is to live our life believing our projected catastrophes. It it is so draining and so uh degrading to the to the quality of our lives and and the people around us, but it's like when we pull that crystal ball out, it seems so real that you know, we're going to you know, die of this or die of that or suffer or lose everybody or get fire, whatever the catastrophe is. And yet if it does even arrive, there are details to it that make it survivable, manageable. You know, maybe we bring human connection into it and there's some comfort in there or whatever. Maybe there's growth that comes out of it. Um, do you Do you find that to be true?
0: I do. I find that to be true. And I find that my crystal ball in in a way, or at least a potential, it's, it's real, right? Like when I look at my mom, I see the ways that my life could be if I had continued to just spiral into negativity um, and never put that in check. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that when I see her now, and when I see the way that she lives her life, like you know, it's like she's so depressed that she doesn't even know that she's depressed. Yeah. And um, in a way, I think it helps me feel like, okay, like I need to be the cycle breaker because I cannot go down this path and end up being where she is at her age. Um, you know, alone and, and bitter and, and blaming everybody else. Um, I just can't, I can't do that. That for me would just be, uh, you know, it's not, it's not acceptable with, with what I envision for my life. And, um, at the same time, it, it kind of, it, it's painful to see that in my mom, but it's also like a really helpful reminder of like, if I, you know, if you don't get your shit together, if you, Mm -hmm. if you allow yourself to indulge on negativity and self pity, um, that's where you're headed. So you yeah. better cut that shit out.
1: Yeah. Anything else you'd like to share before we uh, we wrap up?
0: I can't think of anything right at this moment. But it's well, been so lovely being back.
1: It's really great to to have you. Your kindred spirit, and uh, I, I'm so happy for you that you're in a good place and you're protecting yourself.
0: Oh, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that.
1: You know what's so great about being in support groups is you get to have friends like that. I have so many friends that I can have open vulnerable conversations with and that that is not something that came naturally to me. That is something that I had to work on. So if you find yourself listening and you're like, "Boy, I wish I had somebody in my life that, you know, I could have that kind of a conversation with." It's so doable. It is so doable. You just got to find the right support group with the right people, but they are out there. You might have to go online to do it, but your family is out there. That's what I'm trying to say. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by Harriet didn't have many guys filling out the uh, surveys, this this batch, um, at least shame and secret surveys. I was trying to find one, but there weren't, weren't any. Um, let's see. She calls herself, I've said that already, Harriet. She identifies as straight. She's in her 40s, says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Um, A couple of things, I had a number of gray area relationships with teachers. Uh, My father grew up in a really tough situation and was a very stable man and a good provider despite being distant, but he would make uncomfortable remarks. Uh, And then in parentheses, I saw your titties, brags about his huge penis, etc. I I would say that those are way more than just uncomfortable remarks uh, that, that to me is a form of um, sexual abuse, and some people might go, "Oh, you know, that's it, that you're being a al- little." If your child feels sexually unsafe in your household, that to me is a form of abuse, and I'm not saying that's what your dad intended. Is I want to make her afraid to live under this roof, but a kid deserves to not feel. Sexually creeped out by the person who is supposed to be protecting them. Uh, Starting when I was a teenager, he would occasionally momentarily grope my breasts or my crotch. Doesn't matter to me if it's occasionally, uh, even if it's for a second. Fucked up and he should be taken from the fucking home. Uh, The weird thing is I never felt physically comfortable with him even before then. I'm very confused about it. And despite having had therapy, I never really talked about it because I'm afraid of feeling like an ungrateful, dramatic daughter. Those of us that had a creepy parent, so get what you just said, because we feel like we're throwing them under the bus. Nobody is asking you, is that the totality of who this person is? They're just saying, hey, did something happen that was really not okay that made you feel unsafe you know and this isn't to to opening up about that isn't to get a legal case going against them or to say this person's all good or all bad it's for you to let out the pain and to feel seen and to have your pain validated and to have people Who love you and care about you say you are not making too big of a deal that is super fucked up and that must have really hurt and that must have been really confusing i know his coldness affected me but i have no idea if the specialized behavior did uh she's been physically and emotionally abused my husband has physically hurt me a few times and emotionally abused me during some phases of our life together we've worked really hard uh, on this and are still together. Any positive experiences with abusers? Yes, many more positive than negative. My father has never been very verbally loving, but I care about him and feel bad for him and he has never abandoned us. My husband is a kind, fun person and father most of the time. Darkest thoughts. I am completely terrified of death. Uh, uh, even in my 40s i still long deeply for a loving father figure who would listen to me and appreciate me i've tried to get this from a few men but i'm coming to the conclusion that it's not appropriate and can't happen yeah it's the old uh, the old cliche is no we can't get that from another person after childhood we got to we got to give it to ourselves and make sure that we don't keep toxic people in our lives Darkest Secrets. I've done a lot of secretive things such as a brief stint of compulsive stealing and long-term eating disorder behavior. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Going back in time and fucking a teacher. How does sharing that make you feel? I'm okay with it. What if anything do you wish for? To feel like a good person. You sound like a good person have you shared these things with others? Whenever I tried to talk about stuff with my father in therapy, the therapist would never bring it up again, and I would feel too guilty and melodramatic to revisit it. I think I would have preferred they say, this is something, it matters, it's a big deal, and bring it up again. Instead, I just felt like they forgot. Well, that must have cemented home that myth in your head that that it's, that it's not a big deal, and it's okay, and that therapist is an awful therapist. If, if you expressed it the way that you expressed it here, that is an awful therapist that has no fucking clue about sexual trauma. I'm a jackass that cooked chicken on cable television. And I can see that that is fucked up. Talk to any social worker and they will tell you how do you feel after writing these things down? Like I'm oversharing and desperate to get some need met. You're not oversharing? <laughs> Listen, the surveys are are made for uh, people letting it all out, but that, that was not oversharing at all. And underneath there is a healthy need, which is to to have the you, the real you, the authentic you, And your story and everything validated. And and for somebody to say, that must have been incredibly painful. That's super fucked up. I'm here if you wanna talk about it. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Starflower. She writes, this this does not start off as a happy moment. I was in a car accident this past spring with an uninsured driver. My insurance company was going to repair my car, but the teardown revealed additional damage. On a Friday afternoon, as luck would have it, so no bureaucracy movement. I was freaking out. The additional damage added an extra $1,300. Would this push it over the edge and cause it to be totaled? My husband was out of town, so I was home alone and stir-crazy. I decided to go to the resident lounge in my complex. I forgot that there was a mixer, but decided to stay and mingle. I started chatting with the guy next to me. His accent sounded familiar. We had both moved from the same region to this new city and immediately hit it off. He invited me to dinner with him and his husband. We became instant close friends and have taken to exploring the region together. I guess this was a silver lining. Had my car not been totaled, I wouldn't have gone to the lounge and met these guys. Seems that oftentimes great gifts come in ugly packaging. Amen. Amen. I say that. I say that all the time. And I truly, truly believe it. Um, Not that shitty things happening to us are great, but it's it. It's not just like people, the good thing and the bad thing aren't the totality of of it. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself a buttload of anxiety. I think that's often how anxiety should be packed by the buttload. She identifies as gay. She's in her twenties. She says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, She was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. And... um, I'm 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 not going to read this this part of it. I'll just give you the cliff notes because I, I don't know. It's just I know I read a lot of disturbing stuff on this one, but this one just I don't know. It really disturbed me. <clears throat> I don't know why I ate a handful of macadamia nuts before right before I got on the microphone. <laughs> why didn't I also swallow some sand and some? cinnamon uh her stepdad was a fucking horror show uh sexually abusive uh a a rapist essentially and her mom and you thinking well maybe her mom was there for her no her mom had to be taken from the home and given a restraining order because she was so physically and verbally abusive Uh, So after the mom was taken from the home, uh, she writes, my stepdad became less careful and had less to worry about with her gone. Um, Oh, I want to fast forward through this part. Um, Essentially, he he tried uh, to rape her that night. She writes, I packed a duffel bag and left. I broke down and told a school therapist about him a few months later, but I couldn't get myself to admit that he sexually abused me. I just said... Uh, that he had masturbated while trying to watch me shower. I was too disgusted and ashamed to admit anything else. So we went to court, but he never went to prison. I've been completely estranged from my family ever since I ran away. I spent years thinking I had accepted it and was fine, but I'm 27 and just now realizing just how impacted by this I still am. I feel like a husk of a human being and I can't even pretend that I'm not. I can't hold a job can't follow through on goals that don't involve seeking can't follow through on goals that don't involve seeking therapy and help with mental health. Shit I don't even have a credit score. I have agoraphobia, major depression, generalized anxiety disorder, and CPTSD. Uh, I'm glad i finally started taking the steps to get into group and individual therapy and getting on meds. I know how I'm supposed to feel, that it wasn't my fault, and I'm worth loving, but I'm still filled with so much shame and hopelessness. I feel paranoid and suspicious of every loving interaction directed towards me, and my family uh, abandoning me and choosing to keep him has warped my perception of relationships and trust. I don't know if I'll ever be able to function normally, and it breaks my heart. If it's not obvious, I still struggle to... Expressing my feelings rather than write it down as though it's out of a book, but I'm still definitely trying. I hope you're listening so that you can hear somebody reading your your words. People will sometimes email me and say that um, hearing their survey read on the show uh, was uh, impactful, emotionally impactful for them. So I I hope you're you're listening to this. Um, She has also been uh, physically and emotionally abused. Uh, My mother was the most physically abusive. She would hit my siblings and I at least on a weekly basis and berate us almost every day if we crossed her line of sight. I remember her forcing my sisters and I to do her hair and makeup as she went on a trip to go cheat on her stepdad. And when I told her about how I was sexually abused by her husband, this was after I ran away, she laughed and said, it happens to everyone. She'd make it a point to tell me how no one likes me, that the way I am is why no one in our family wanted anything to do with me, that she wishes I was never born, that she blamed me for why her husband, my stepdad, didn't touch her or love her anymore. When I was a kid, I'd try to wear layers of clothes. It made me feel safe, and I thought it would deter my stepdad, Uh, but she would rip them off of me, telling me how ugly I was. Uh, My stepdad hit us, but it was more rare. He did make it a point to tell me that no one would truly love me the way he did, though, that I would be used by every other man in my life. Joke's on him, though. I'm a lesbian. When my mom was in prison, our stepdad would leave us with strangers for weeks, and when we did have a stable place, we wouldn't have running water or heat, and four of my siblings and I would have to sleep in the attic on thin foam mattresses. After I ran away, my stepdad stalked me, driving past my school, work, home, etc. No matter where I moved, I'd eventually see his car sitting outside. I'm pretty sure that's why I have agoraphobia now. Good lord. Good fucking lord. Any positive experiences with the abusers. My stepdad would take me out of school to get my favorite food and buy me toys. We'd go smoke weed together when I was around 12. He he sounds pretty terrific. Uh, and he'd have these sort of date nights, buying oof, buying lobster, watching movies, and spending time together. He also protected me and my siblings from my mom a lot. Those give me complicated feelings because I know so much of it was grooming that even so much of the positive experiences were tainted with underlying intentions. I struggle to think of any from my mom, which is strange. Yeah, that's one of the things that really fucks people up is when somebody who was abusive was also nice to us because then when people outside of that relationship do something nice for us, we immediately go to the place of... What do they want? Darkest thoughts. I think about killing him all the time, or better yet, and it's not fully formed. Uh, I can help you flush it out. But I think about going back to that house, killing myself in front of him, and somehow setting it up to where he'd die a minute or so after me. Explosives. Explosives or something just taking him and I and that awful house out entirely so that there's nothing left. I worry that I'm making all of my mental illnesses up that I should be fine and not struggling this much, that I'm just making excuses for why I can't go outside or work or why I resort to contemplating suicide over the smallest of triggers. You are a fucking survivor. The shit that you have been through is unbelievable. And sometimes I, 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 I hesitate to read Surveys like this that are so dramatic because I I'm worry that people out there who who have been through difficult things will hear this and go, well, my, my God, that's clearly abuse. So what I went through wasn't that big of a deal. Um, darkest secrets. I still only see myself as something to be used. I'm pretty sure I've been raped other times in my life by men. But I'm scared to go down that rabbit hole. In the past, I've slept with married men and cheated on my partners in order to get that sliver of validation. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. It used to be extreme acts of physical violence or rape with the men doing the violence and raping. But now, honestly, hot women being confident does the trick. And that's what I call progress. That's awesome. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could apologize to the people I hurt, cheated on, etc. in the past. I had such terrible tunnel vision as a teenager and wanted to be loved and chosen and used so badly that I didn't care about the repercussions or who it impacted. I'd also like to tell the men who found me at my lowest and most vulnerable, knowing full well I was in the middle of a breakdown and took advantage of that in order to get sex. Fuck you. What if anything you wish for, I wish I could know what it feels like to have a family and friendships and to not be terrified of holidays or going outside. I wish I knew what it felt like to fully exhale and relax into the arms of someone I loved. I really believe that that is doable for you. I really, truly do believe it. Have you shared these things with others? Somewhat. It goes okay, but I get scared That their view of me would change and that's the thing the vulnerability vulnerability involves risk and it's terrifying at first but it gets easier i can i can tell you that it gets easier how do you feel after writing these things down i feel like my stomach is twisted up but also a bit of relief is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences You are so fucking worthy of every good thing life has to offer and you did not deserve the life you were given. Also know that being able to choose your family is great. It may be hard to make friends, but once you do, they'll be better than anything your family could have offered. Amen. A-fucking-men. These are some loves filled out by people-pleasing peacekeeper. And they write, I love when a dog rests its head on me. It feels like such a primal and vulnerable show of affection. They probably just want to sleep and are using me for cushioning. I don't care. My dad and I have had issues in the past, which we've mostly overcome. It's been years, but it still feels so nice to see his name pop up on my phone when he calls or texts me. My partner and I both work from home, but every Sunday he does an in-person shift. That's the only day I get the apartment to myself, and I love to put sweats on, blast music or a podcast, and clean the apartment. After sitting at my computer all week, doing something that requires the use of my hands is so therapeutic. I love getting home from a party and decompressing, feeling proud of myself for doing something social and happy I can relax. Extra points if my partner was with with me, and we can, quote, debrief, unquote, and gossip. I love when Paul reads scam emails as though they're as serious as the darkest of surveys. I love the first day of spring when I can leave the house without a jacket. I feel liberated from winter and excited for the summer ahead. I'll probably spend most of the summer inside bitching about the heat, but it still feels good. I love when I walk past a dog on a leash and they look back at me and make eye contact and smile. It feels like they're tipping their cap to me and it makes me giddy. I love clicking with a new person. Even if it's a waiter and I know the relationship won't last more than an hour, it feels so good to be on someone's wavelength, like a matching of energies. I love giving away or throwing out things I don't need. Using the last battery in a box and throwing the box away. Dropping a set of sheets I don't need off at Salvation Army. I sometimes end up needing the things I give away, but it feels worth it for the high of working towards minimalism. Uh, I love when I have the moment of realization that the show or movie I'm watching is going to be good, and I think, oh, shit, I'm in for a fun ride. I love that one. Oh, and I love this next one, last one. Eating something that brings me back to my childhood. I recently had Eggo waffles for the first time in decades, and they almost brought me to my knees. Those are great. And I love when you're eating waffles and you get just the perfect amount. The waffle is hot enough that the butter completely melts. And then you get, and it perfectly spreads. So every bite has butter and a little bit of syrup in it. It's all about the ratio. Pizza. Isn't pizza really all about the ratio? Too much crust. It's ruined. I don't know if I've ever had a pizza ruined by too much cheese, though. Forget what I said. And then finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Annie G. She writes, I often joke about my time spent committed to a mental hospital after I tried to kill myself by referring to it as that time I tried to check out early. My friends and I will sometimes call it the sticky sticky sock staycation. Or for those of you that have never been to a, a hospital, they give you socks that have like rubber on the bottom that are very sticky Uh, or the happy hospital if we're discussing it around my very young nieces. The ironic thing is I now work on a psychiatric unit in a mental health hospital, not the same one I was committed to. That might be a little much, but I'm getting my master's in clinical mental health counseling and will start practicum at this hospital in the fall. For the time being, I wanted to go ahead and start working one-on-one with patients and getting a feel for talking to them in person, so I took this open position as a mental health technician until my practicum begins. I find it puts a lot of the patients at ease when I tell them I've been where they are. The nurses and staff can seem really intimidating and uncaring when you're being held mandatorily, and I can tell that patients are always kind of surprised when I admit that I, too, have attempted suicide and been committed to a place just like this. But I don't feel shameful about it. In fact, I'm proud that I got help, and now I can return the favor and an odd twist of fate. Plus, I can relate to the patients when they complain about the beds being uncomfortable or the food tasting nasty. I can even tell them about the plans I had made in my head to try to escape the hospital when the nurses weren't looking. The funniest part to me is how much better most of the patients I see handled being committed than I did. I mean, I could not stop crying for like the first day and a half. There was no consoling me and I was on the phone with my family every 10 minutes begging them to find a lawyer or something to come get me out of there. So yeah, humility plays a big role when I talk about my own experiences in a psych unit. But like I said, I really think the patients appreciate my openness and honesty and it makes them feel more comfortable with me and willing to talk to me about their problems, which is what I am there for. You, Anna G., are fucking awesome. What a gift to humanity. I've never been in a mental hospital, but I've been in hospital hospitals many times, and the kindness of a nurse or a doctor, but it's 99% of the time a nurse, has such a soothing effect. Uh, I I cannot, especially when I was a kid, I probably talked about this on the podcast before, but... um, There was one time in particular that I was 10 years old. I was having my fucking testicles operated. I was just, it was a shit show. Embarrassing, awful. Dad wasn't even coming. And this nurse just paid attention to me, made me feel like the most important person in the world. She'd sing me songs and inject my name into the songs. And it just, it took all the sadness away when she would be in the room. It was just like, it was amazing. So uh, that that survey really uh, it really touched me, and I think it's also a great example that the bullshit that we endure can sometimes be the thing that is the path to meaning um, and purpose in our life. Which for me, the majority of peace that I experience in my life has been from the meaning culled from connection that I had to create to stay alive. And then there it is now for me to make a living doing it and feeling good about myself most of the time. Uh, if you're out there, I like how I almost blanked on the <laughs> the thing that I've ended 646 episodes with. If you're out there, and you're feeling stuck put on some hiking socks make sure they're thick get a map don't don't go electronic go old school unfold it get on a crowded bus and old unfold it run your fingers through your hair and say ah the himalayas do you know if this bus will get me to the himalayas that's what you do i am so weird you're out there and you're feeling stuck. Never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening.
0: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know weird is bizarrely, beautifully up, in is weird bizarrely beautifully fucked up, up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.